morning, Sovereign Grace. It's great to see so many of you on this last day of 2023. You can begin to turn to our passage in Titus chapter 3. That's where we'll be today as our last sermon in the Advent series. Titus chapter 3, one more week in Titus, and one more week in these kind of gospel in a nutshell passages. I hope you have been blessed by this, just pouring out the gospel message all over the epistles here, and it's just incredible to see how these condensed forms of the gospel are so unique and such a blessing and give us a wonderful glimpse of who our Savior is. So Titus chapter 3, and we will read verses 3 through 8. Let me remind you once again, this is the word of our Lord. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Lord, we rejoice that Christ, our Savior, has come. Even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, and we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, you showed us grace and mercy, Lord, by sending your Son to save us from your wrath and make us alive together with Christ through the transforming and renewing work of the Holy Spirit, so that now we might live, Lord, as your workmanship, walking in good works, the works that you prepared beforehand for us. So, Father, we ask, please give us the grace we need this morning to rejoice in our Savior so that we might delight in your law and walk in your ways. We pray this in Jesus' name. For his sake. Amen. Well, this is that wonderful time of year where 2024, the new year, is right on our doorstep. New beginning is here. And so now change is on everyone's mind. Everyone. The optimists among us are probably thinking, this is the year. This is the year of great change in my life. Kids, I'll bet there's even a few of you that are thinking this way. Probably very few that are thinking, you know what, I'm excited to get back to school. 
But I bet there's some that are excited to get back and begin new classes and a new semester, a fresh start to develop new study habits and new routines so you get even better grades than last semester. And adults, I'm sure there are some, at least a few here, that have probably even planned out your New Year's resolution. You've probably decided, no, 2024 is the year that you'll finally make the change. You'll finally lose the weight you've been trying to lose or stay organized or maybe just spend your money the way you want, not as frivolously as in the past. Or maybe you've decided this is the year that I will pray regularly, that I will be in the scriptures more. I'm going to start this Bible reading plan and read the whole scripture in a year. or I'm going to serve more or serve better when I do. These are all great resolutions that we make. I'm sure many of you have something similar to this, and you're thinking, this is the year that I make it happen. But then there's the rest of us. <laughs> and you can call us pessimists or realists, the type of people that, you know what, we don't make New Year's resolutions anymore because we've just realized that, you know what, we just won't keep them. We've been where you optimists are. We've been there, excited about the New Year, determined to change. But our big, exciting changes lasted a day or a week. Or some of you might have had that gym membership for a year that you went twice, right? We've experienced those kinds of things. And so now even for us, the ones that don't make New Year's resolutions, it still reminds us of change. But the change that we didn't make. Change that we maybe couldn't make. You know, I think I was thinking about this struggle for change this week, and it brings up an interesting question here related to this text, which is really how are we Christians truly and completely changed? How does that happen? I'm not talking about minor changes in our life, changes in habit or diet or, or routines or just minor changes even in our appearance that we usually talk about for New Year's resolutions. How does definitive change happen? How are we changed from a child of wrath to a child of God? How do we become the new creation in Christ that is talked about in 2 Corinthians 5.17? Where the old man has passed away and the new has come. How does that happen? Is that the work of our hands? Is that the strength of our willpower to make it happen? Or does that only happen by someone else? Someone who can do far more abundantly than we ask or think. I'm sure most of you know that answer. And Paul reminds us of that answer in this passage, where change really comes from. And really, he reminds us in three simple words in verse 5. This incredible summary of the gospel here, but it's really condensed in those three precious words at the beginning of verse 5. So how are we truly and completely changed as Christians? Verse 5 says, he saved us. That's it. God, the God of the universe, saved sinners like us. That's the gospel in a nutshell. That really is the message of the whole Bible, isn't it? Condensed in maybe the smallest form ever, perfect for Twitter or whatever social media is out there, right? He saved us. But to really understand how glorious those three words are, I want to give you three points today as we walk through this passage that really expand on how God saved us, how God has actually changed us from a child of wrath to a child of God. 
So first, I want us to focus on what we are saved from. What we are saved from, that old man that we were in Adam in verse 3. And then we'll see how, how God saves us in verses 4 through 6. And then lastly, what we are saved to. Or in other words, the new man that we are in Christ. We'll see that in verses 7 through 8. So first, what are we saved from? The old man. Verse 3, and I just warn you up front as we read, this is not a pretty picture. It's hard to even believe this is us. Let's look at verse 3 together. For we ourselves were once. Now let's stop there for a minute because we need to see who Paul is addressing here. Who is this we ourselves? Well, we know it has to be at least Titus. The book is addressed to Titus. And as we saw last week when Chad preached in Titus 2, Paul has been mentoring Titus this young pastor, and so these words are to him and to his church in Crete. Those are part of the we here. But this generalization is broad enough to not just include the church in Crete and those small groups of Christians there, but the Christians all around the world at that point and even all around the world now. So this is an address to the whole church throughout the ages, including us as well. So we are part of this we here. And I love that Paul includes himself. Did you notice that? He doesn't say you, yourselves. As if to say, you know what, church, this is your problem. You have issues, but I'm, I'm great. Paul doesn't say that. It's we ourselves. Almost as if Paul is saying, yes, Titus, I'm the one mentoring you. I'm the one leading you in holiness. I'm the one giving you wise and sound counsel. But Titus, don't forget what you read in Acts. Don't forget where I started as well. It's the same place that you started. This is the place we've all been saved from. So that's what this verse is. It's a picture the place where all Christians are saved from. This is who we all used to be. And sadly, for a lot of non-Christians out there, this is who they still are apart from Christ. I want you to think of this almost as if Paul is holding up that before diet picture. Right? We see a lot of those this time of year when we're you're planning for diets or whatever. This is the before picture, before the change happens. Like Paul is saying, look, I know it's hard to look at this. But this is who you were apart from Christ. This is where you started. This is the old man. And I want you to see it so you can see how much you changed. So you can see what God has done in you. So listen to this sevenfold description of what we have been saved from. Verse 3 again. For we ourselves were once foolish. Or some of your translations might say ignorant. That means we lacked spiritual wisdom. We lacked understanding. We were blind, lost. We, our minds were darkened. We were alienated from God. Now be careful not to take that too far. That doesn't mean we were dumb or stupid. That doesn't mean we had a low IQ and then God just made us really smart. That's not what's going on here. You know there are plenty of people in this world who are very intelligent even very successful in the eyes of the world. They can run massive companies and they make tons of money. They make incredible discoveries and really even stretch our understanding as humanity with the way that we see the world. But then you look at these successful men and women, you really look at their lives 
A lot of them, their lives are a complete train wreck, aren't they? Filled with all the devastation that sin brings. Divorce, addiction, abandoned children, broken families. And you think, how can that be? How can you be so smart and your life look like this? Well, Paul tells us. Because even though they're smart, they're still fools. They're still fools in God's eyes. Spiritually blind to God and his ways. And don't think for a minute that we can now look down on them because we are better than them. Because we started there too, didn't we? This is who we once were. Blind, ignorant fools to God's ways. Second, Paul says we were disobedient. I believe Paul is primarily talking there about disobedience towards God, this kind of vertical disobedience, because that's where he started this book, in Titus chapter 1. You don't have to turn there, but listen to what he says in Titus 1.16. Paul says that unbelievers are detestable. They're disobedient. Well, what do you mean by that, Paul? They deny God by their works. So their disobedience is According to God, it's breaking his laws. It's rebelling against his ways, rejecting him and his character. But don't forget that rebellion, this kind of disobedience often shows up, not just in a vertical sense, but in a horizontal sense, in the way that we obey or disobey the authorities that God has placed in our lives. Kids, this can show up for you in the home. With the parents that God gave you, those are the authorities that God gave you to obey and to obey in the name of God, Romans 1.30. Adults, this can be our governing officials, obeying the laws of the state, Romans 13. This can even be disobedience in the church. The spiritual authorities, the elders, the leaders of the church that God has placed in your life. We are called in Hebrews 13 to obey and to submit to them. Why? Because they are keeping watch over our souls. So see here, this disobedience Paul is talking about, he's not saying, look, you're disobedient because you don't obey the state or the elders in every possible command they give you. That's not what he's talking about here. Paul knows if these authorities call you to disobey God's law, then the right response is what Peter did in Acts 5. We are to obey God and not man. What Paul is saying here, look, your disobedience shows that you think you're in charge. You think that you are an authority all to yourself. You think you don't have to account for anyone for your actions. When really your disobedience just proves what's in your heart. That you're morally corrupt. Spiritually bankrupt. And that shows up in your conduct. And third and fourth descriptions are both very similar here in verse 3. Look in the middle of verse 3. Paul says, we were led astray. Some of your translations might say deceived. I think that's actually a better translation. Continually deceived. And we were slaves to various passions and pleasures. Look, this deception and this going astray can happen really in two ways in our lives. We can be deceived or led astray by the deceiver, the devil, the father of lies, the one who is always twisting God's truth. Or we can be even deceived and led astray by ourselves, lying to ourselves, self-deceived, creating this whole false narrative 
where we're always right and we're pointing fingers at everybody else because everybody else is the problem. Now, why does this happen? Why are we so easily deceived and led astray? Well, the verse tells us here, because we were slaves, slaves to various passions and pleasures. Apart from Christ, we were ruled by our instincts, weren't we? Our urges, our our gut. Isn't this what we've been seeing in Genesis? Very clearly, especially with Esau, right? And even sometimes with Jacob himself. You remember, it hasn't been too long, Genesis 25. After a long day of hunting, Esau comes home starving. And Jacob's making that stew. And he says, just give me some of that stew. Esau wants the stew. He says, I don't care about my birthright. Take it, whatever you want. All I care about is satisfying my gut, is living and satisfying my passions, my desires. That is who we are apart from Christ. Slaves to our sinful, evil desires. So in the end, it really doesn't take much, does it, for Satan to lead us astray, for us to deceive ourselves. Our hearts already want wickedness and evil twisted things because we already hate God. And so the devil just comes along and tempts us to indulge the desires that are already in our hearts, telling us over and over again, sin is really what will satisfy you. Sin will give you lasting hope and peace and security and pleasures. You can't look to God for that. God doesn't have your best interests at mind. He won't provide what you really need. No, you need to get it for yourself. Provide and protect yourself. That's what the devil tells us. And look, brothers and sisters, you need to understand, the devil doesn't put anything into our heart that isn't already there. What comes out of our heart is there in our fallen nature, and the devil just brings it out through temptation and conflict and deception. So sadly, even as believers... We can sometimes even fall prey to these lies, can't we? We can still be led into sin and go astray for a period of time because the remnants of that old man, that sinful flesh, still dwell within us. We've been saved from the power of sin so that we can obey, saved from the penalty of sin, but we still dwell in the presence of sin, don't we? Still our heart wants this world, but the difference is Christians will recognize their sin. We'll call it what God calls it, and they will repent, and they will turn back to God. See, that's the pattern of a Christian. It's not perfection on the one hand or full-blown deception on the other. The pattern for a Christian is repentance, is turning back to God. But the pattern for an unbeliever, they have completely wholesale bought into the devil's lies live in a constant state of deception, always going astray in their heart. As Paul says in Ephesians 2, verse 1, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, which is the deceiver, the devil, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. That's who we all once were, apart from Christ. And lastly, the end of verse 3. Paul says, we were passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating 
one another. And these descriptions, they're essentially summed up with basically our lives were consumed by hatred. Isn't that a picture of our world? In so many ways, malice here, malice is wishing evil on somebody else. In a way, almost like payback and vengeance. Wishing that evil thing would happen to them and they would feel the hurt for hurting you. And then envy in the other way is kind of the opposite. It's wishing the good that somebody's experiencing on you instead of them. It's a different form of coveting, but both of these are forms of hatred, aren't they? It's a picture of a heart turned completely inward in selfish, consuming pride. Where we don't even have the ability to celebrate somebody's success if it's not our own. And we actually wish terrible things on other people. I hope they pay for what they did to me. And you know living this way just destroys every relationship eventually, doesn't it? Because every problem is someone else's fault. I'm always the victim. Everybody else is always to blame because you know what? The world revolves around me. And anybody who gets in the way of that and my happiness, they're the problem. That's what Paul's describing here. This is a terrible picture, isn't it? This is a picture of the character and the conduct of a person who is apart from Christ. This is the old man. This is what we were born into in Adam. This is what we were saved from. And I hope some of you are thinking, well, you know what? That's not me. That's not me. If you're a believer, that's what you should be saying. You Essentially, you're right. This doesn't describe you anymore. That's why Paul says this is who you once were apart from Christ. This is the old man we're trying to put off by the power of the Spirit, so that the new man, which is Christ, can be displayed within us, Ephesians 4. But still, what if this still describes you today? What if you're looking at this picture and you're thinking back over this year as we reflect on 2023 and you think, you know what, this is a lot of what, I, what my year looked like. This is what my heart has been like. This is the actions I've seen in my life over this last week, this last month, this last year, whatever it may be. Well, what does that mean? Well, it could mean that you're just an unbeliever living in open and rebellion against God. That's possible here. And if that's you today, if you want nothing to do with this God, you're living for yourself, I need to warn you that judgment is coming. You may actually live like and believe that you're a rule all to yourself. But all you're doing is storing up wrath for yourself for the day of judgment. And if you die today, it will be eternity in hell for you. I don't say that in pride. I don't say that glibly or anything else. I say that knowing that that's what I've been saved from as well. So I call you to repent. Maybe you're a believer, though. You've said you're a believer, and you're looking at this going, wait a minute. This is the pattern of my life. It's not repentance. I thought I was a believer, but I've been self-deceived. I live in disobedience and rebellion against God, even though I call myself a believer, even though I grew up in the church. And if that's you today, if this is still who you are, again, repent. Walk away from this. Look to Christ. That's the only way we're changed, the only way we're saved. And that's where Paul goes next. 
How can we be changed from verse 3 to really the end of this passage in verses 7 through 8? How can we be saved from the judgment to come? Well, we see that in the next few verses. So we've seen the picture of the old man. Now let's look at how, how God saved us, how we're changed from the old to the new. Now essentially, look, there are two ways that people try to fix the problem in verse 3. Two ways our, our world wants to free ourselves from the mess that we saw in verse 3. The first way is self-improvement, is works. Usually it's in religion. This is what really all other world religions are based around. I'm going to fix this problem in me. I'm recognizing there's a problem. I'm not blind to it, but I'm going to fix it with the work of my own hands. And the only other way to fix this problem is divine intervention. It's God's sovereign grace, which is at the heart of Christianity. And Paul makes that abundantly clear here in verse 4, that divine intervention by our sovereign God, our Savior, is our only hope. Look at verse 4. After this terrible description in verse 3, there's this turn. Do you see it? Verse 4, the first word, but. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared. Now, what appearance is he talking about? Well, it's the appearance we've been talking about since six weeks ago. This is Christmas, isn't it? This is the first advent here. And you remember, Chad talked about the appearance last week in Titus chapter 2. You don't have to turn there. Listen to this verse. 2 verse 10 says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And who is that grace of God that has appeared? The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So the appearance of Christ, the word of God who became flesh, God incarnate. That's the appearance we're talking about here. But then why in this passage does Paul call Jesus the goodness and the kindness of God? That's an interesting title, isn't it? Not the Christ, but the goodness and kindness of God. Almost as if that's his name. Or at least that's what he's displayed. And that's the idea. Because God the Father shows us his goodness and kindness for all humanity by sending his son into the world. To save us from our fallen state just described in verse 3. In other words, it's Jesus that manifests the Father's goodness and kindness towards his people. He's the one that makes it visible. He's the one that puts it in flesh in a way by becoming truly a man. How? Well, he's the one to keep God's covenant promises. He's the one to fulfill all those wonderful gospel promises we hear throughout Scripture. Even the very first one, that Jesus would come and crush the head of Satan forever. Jesus appeared to do that. And he did that by living the life that we failed to live. Really doing the opposite of what verse 3 says, right? All the things that we've messed up, he obeyed. He trusted. He followed God's ways when we abandoned God and rebelled against him. And then he died on the cross, paying the wrath of God that we deserve. And rose from the dead, ascending to heaven. Defeating our greatest enemies, Satan, sin. And death. And Jesus appeared so that we 
Sinners like us, we can be reconciled to our holy God. We can be adopted into God's family. We can be cleansed of our sin, remade into the image of Christ so that we can too be holy and dwell with our God forever. Just as God promised, I will be your God and you will be my people. Jesus is the one that made that happen to fulfill those great words. Just as the Apostle John says in his gospel, and probably one of the most famous verses that we know, probably many of us haven't memorized, John 3.16, says, For God so loved the world. Have you ever thought about what shows that love? How do we see that love? How do we know that the Father loves us? For God so loved the world that he gave. He gave his only Son. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Jesus is the evidence, the manifestation of the love of the Father. And that's why it's summed up in these three words in verse 5. He saved us. The Father saves us through the work of the Son. It's not that we saved ourselves, not that we earned salvation. No, He saved us. And I don't know about you, but I am so thankful that he didn't wait until I was all cleaned up first. He didn't wait until I would show some potential. Maybe a, one day I might be something better than I actually am. He didn't even wait until we had something to offer him. We had nothing. Nothing to offer but our filthy rags. Worthless good works. See, Paul is very clear here. Self-improvement can't fix us. It can't take us from the old man to the new. That's why it says here, he saved us. Look at verse 5. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but how? According to his own mercy. So we were so bad off in Adam that salvation had to come from outside of ourselves. That's how spiritually bankrupt and broken we were. We could never do enough or be enough to merit eternal life, to fix our sin problem. It's like that wonderful song. We sang it last week, almost made us sing it again today because it's glorious here, the rock of ages. The second verse says, not the labor of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal, my passion, excitement, my fervor for God, no respite, no? Could my tears, my sorrow for sin forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Still not enough. What's the solution? Thou must save. And thou alone. That's our hope. The mercy of God, divine intervention. Our hope is that when we were running away from God, Blind to his ways, rebelling against him. God said, stop in your tracks, you're mine. I have ransomed you by the blood of Christ. Now you belong to me. Body and soul, both in life and death, to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. So Heidelberg Catechism, question and answer one says, and reminds us of that glorious truth, right? And look, this is wonderful good news, but it still leaves one very, very important question to be answered. This is all great. These blessings are incredible. I definitely don't deserve them, but how do I receive them? 
How do I benefit from Christ's work, which was done thousands of years ago in a country I've never even been to? How do I get all of these blessings of salvation so that I'm actually changed? Well, that's the work of the Holy Spirit, who applies all the finished work of Christ to us so that we are saved. Look at the end of verse 5. Right after Paul says we're not saved by works, he tells us how we're saved. He says, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. See, this is that divine, supernatural intervention we desperately needed. This is the mercy of God. The Holy Spirit comes into our hearts and gives our heart, our dead heart, life. That's what regeneration is. The Holy Spirit gives us faith and so that we would trust in Christ and his finished work. And then the Holy Spirit renews us, remakes us into the image of our Savior as he washes us clean from sin and sanctifies us so that we are fit for heaven. In other words, the Holy Spirit changes us from the old man in Adam and unites us to the new man, which is Christ. Makes us a new creation so that we receive all of these glorious blessings, including eternal life. I love this next verse because it's not that the Holy Spirit is given to us in in tiny little increments. You know what? You need a little bit more Holy Spirit than you do. And I need a little bit more. No, no, that's not the picture here. It's not that we get a little bit of the Holy Spirit just when we're in need. Look what verse 6 says. Whom he, that's God, poured out on us richly, lavishly through Jesus Christ our Savior. That word did not need to be there. Paul did not have to include richly here. But it's perfect. The Holy Spirit is not held back in any way from us. Just as God promised he would pour it out in Joel 2, just as we saw fulfilled in Acts 2, the Holy Spirit being poured out on the church, God still pours out his Spirit on all his people today, lavishly and richly to change us. He doesn't hold back one blessing accomplished for us in Christ. He gives us the Spirit without measure. Why? To transform us forever from one degree of glory to the next. To assure us that the God that saves us loves us through the spirit of adoption. Romans 8 verse 15. And also so that we would delight in God's law. The law that we used to hate. So that we can now walk in God's ways forever. This is just all the blessings that God has already promised us in the new covenant, isn't it? What he promised long ago in the book of Ezekiel 36. Chad read this last week, but let me read it again. Verse 26 in Ezekiel 36. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit, the Holy Spirit, within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This is what the Holy Spirit does for us. Cleanses us from the sin and the depravity and the filth that is in our hearts because of the fall and remakes us into the image of Christ so that we can grow in holiness. As we obey God's laws, we walk in his statutes. And as we do that, the Holy Spirit shapes us and molds us 
so that we will one day be fit to dwell with our holy God. Friends, does this describe you? Has the Holy Spirit been poured out on you so that you are radically changed? Is the fruit of the Spirit showing up in your life? If not, then repent. It's not too late. It's not too late to change from that old man, to be transformed by the Spirit. But that takes looking to the the finished work of Christ. And God will be faithful to pour out his Spirit on all of us and change us forever. Well, then what do we do? Then what do we do now? Do we, we sit back and just wait until the day that we are perfected in all of eternity? No. We live like who we are. We are new men in Christ. We need to live like it, act like it. So we've seen the old man, what we're saved from. We've seen how God saves us in and through Christ and through the work of the Holy Spirit. Let's look lastly at the new man, briefly, of what we are saved to. And Paul really describes the character of this new man, really the results of the Spirit's work here in verse 7. Look at verse 7. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Now you hear us talk about justification a lot, but I think a lot of people still really misunderstand this word. It's not as if God has just wiped the slate clean. Not just said, wow, you really messed this up. Let me just give you a second chance. That's not what God did. I've heard even people say, well, justification is just as if I'd never sinned. I sure hope not. I mean, that sounds cute, right? It sounds catchy in in some ways, but that's not justification. It's so much more glorious than that. Justification maybe is just saying, just as if I always obeyed. Or even better, just as if. I was as righteous as Christ himself, the Son of God. Because you see, in Christ, we, we have a right standing before God. We belong in his presence because we've been declared righteous. That's what justification really is. This great exchange happened where all of our sin and depravity was transferred to Christ on the cross and all of his righteousness was given to us by the work of the Spirit, through faith. This great exchange, that's what justification is talking about here. Declared righteous. Well, why? What's the purpose of this? Look at verse 7. Again, the end of verse 7. So that we might become heirs. Heirs according to the hope of eternal life. See, we are declared righteous so that we might be heirs with Christ, We might be brought into the family of God through adoption so that we would receive the blessing of eternal life, the inheritance of those who are in the family of God. Romans 8, 17 says this, We have been made children of God, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ. Why? In order that we might also be glorified with him. See, that's the end goal. That's where all of this leads. It's to the glory of God in the Holy Spirit's work in us, transforming us into new creations so that we might walk in God's ways and reflect his glory, reflect the image of God that we were truly made in back to this world around us. That's where it's all headed, to glorify God. But that doesn't just begin in eternity. That happens right now. We are new 
people in Christ, new men in Christ. We are in Christ, and that shows up in our good works. That's why Paul says in verse 8, the saying is trustworthy, referring to everything above. And I want you to insist on these things. Titus, teach the church these things. Why? So that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. So that's what this whole passage is leading to. I know we're not preaching through Titus, but this is what Paul's main point is. This is the right response to the work of salvation. He saved us so that we might follow that up with grateful, thankful obedience. In fact, Paul brackets this whole section here, this gospel in a nutshell, with a call to good works. We see it here in verse 8. We also see it in Titus 3 verse 1. Look what it says. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every what? Good work. We saw it last week in Titus chapter 2, verse 14. Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for what? Good works. And don't forget, one of the last things that Paul says to Titus in this whole letter, in verse 14 of chapter 3. Verse 14, he says, And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works. That's what Paul wants ringing in this pastor's ear. That's what all of this leads to. And Paul has been abundantly clear. We are not saved by good works, but we are saved to do good works, to honor the God who saved us. That would have been impossible for us before we were united to Christ, but because of the cleansing and the regenerative work of the Holy Spirit, we can walk in God's ways, and we actually want to walk in God's ways. We can honor the Lord who saved us and be grateful and sing his praise. That's what we're called to in Christ. I was trying to think this week of an illustration that would just wrap up all of these ideas, these beautiful pictures together, and I couldn't help but thinking about adoption. As I said last week, we hope this next year we'll be able to adopt our younger daughter. We're, we're excited, and we don't know for sure that's still, still to be seen, but we're excited because it looks like that may happen. And I was just thinking this week about the crazy process over these last couple years that has got us to this point. We're not even there yet, but it's still been crazy, as many of you know, and have prayed for, and I, I thank you for that. But I was thinking, how ridiculous would it be for me to come to this little girl two years ago when I first met her and said, oh, you know what, you're so cute. I got a deal for you. Get yourself adopted. You make it happen, all on your own. You take care of the classes, you go to all the visits, you fill out all the paperwork, you deal with all the social workers and the, the challenges in court. You supply everything you need to be part of our family and then we'll adopt you. Then you can be a Horner forever. It is funny, you should laugh. That's ridiculous, right? It's ridiculous. No one would ever say anything like that and yet that is how some of us approach God. 
That we can somehow earn our way into his family through the work of our own hands, through our sheer willpower. I need to do something to clean myself up, to be welcomed in the presence of God, to come to the Lord's table, to be able to be a child of God. I need to adopt myself. Which is even more ridiculous, by the way, than me to call this little girl to adopt herself. Because here's the thing, she wants to be adopted. She actually wants a forever family, but not us. In our sin, we wanted to be orphans, and we wanted to stay orphans. We wanted to rule over our lives and call good and evil for ourselves. But praise be to God, he didn't leave us as orphans. He sent his son into the world to do all the work required for our adoption. And in Christ, God saved us and cleansed us from all of our sin through the work of the Holy Spirit, which was poured out on us as the spirit of adoption. And in our baptism, we receive the family name and the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's much like an adoption ceremony in many ways. And it's not because of anything that we've done. Just like for her, it won't be over anything that she's done that she's adopted even though she had a lot more to contribute than even us. <laughs> and you know what? There will be times, too, where we doubt God's love, don't we? Where we still want to act like orphans. Just as there will be times when this little girl will doubt our love and still want to act like she's not a part of our family. But then our Heavenly Father reminds us, like in this passage, who we are now and who we once were. Reminds us that that's not who you are anymore. You are a child of God. You are a new creation in Christ. You are now part of God's family forever. That means you need to live like you're a part of this family. You need to resemble the father that saved you and your big brother, Jesus Christ. Live like the family. Walk in the ways. And you have the Holy Spirit enabling you to do that. That's the hope we have brought into the family of God forever by the work of Christ and the cleansing work of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray that God would help us walk in his ways. Heavenly Father, thank you for this wonderful text, this wonderful reminder of what has been done for us in Christ. Lord, help us to rejoice that it's all of grace. It's not human effort or our willpower that gets us into your family, but it's all the finished work of Christ. And he's coming again even to finish what he started. So Lord, help us to walk in your ways, to trust in you, to delight in your word so that we might glorify your name all of our days. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.